Well, if you can keep uh, Mark 6 open before you, we continue our study of the book of Mark. In the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Mark is describing how King Jesus is reestablishing the rule and reign of God over a broken world. He's in the process of gathering followers who who will take the good news of the kingdom of God and share that gospel of the kingdom to the world. In the first half of Mark's gospel, the focus Mark has is trying to help us understand who is Jesus and what is his kingdom all about. So over the last several weeks, we've learned that Jesus is the king. He is the son of God, meaning the co-ruler of the universe who has come to reestablish the rule of God on the earth. We saw that in Mark 2 that Jesus can forgive sins, which is a prerogative of God. Jesus can do that because he is God. We saw in Mark 4 that there are all kinds of responses to the gospel of the kingdom of God. Some that don't get it at all. Some who begin to grow up and then fall away when there's trials. Others who will fade away because the cares of this world will crowd out the love of Jesus and the love of his kingdom. And last week we saw that Jesus has the power to defeat death in the raising of Jairus' daughter and also that Jesus, when he heals the woman with the issue of blood, is that Jesus has the power to deal with sin and our shame. And so in Mark 6, Mark describes again who Jesus is and what his kingdom is all about. And he does this predominantly through describing to us three dinner parties. Now, there's actually one dinner party that we're going to look at, but embedded in that dinner party are sort of of looking backwards and then forwards to two other dinner parties that are extremely important in helping us understand more of what Jesus came to do And what his kingdom is all about. We pick up the story this morning. We'll look at this first dinner party. Uh, The disciples, the apostles have been sent out on a, a mission outreach project. Where they're sharing the gospel of the kingdom of God. And they're doing some healings. And they're casting out demons. And they've come back and given a report to Jesus. We see that in verse 30 of Mark 6. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. And what Jesus does immediately with his disciples, he wants them to come away by themselves into a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away to the boat to a desolate place by themselves. But many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran on there by foot, all the towns and, and got there ahead of them, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So Jesus has gone with his disciples, the crowd sees them, and the crowd then comes to him, they're sheep, like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus says, and Jesus begins to teach them, teach them about his kingdom, teach them about himself. Now, what's interesting about this group here, Mark doesn't uh, sort of specifically say this quite as clearly, but there's a parallel passage in John 6. 
It has the same miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on the water, just like Mark 6 details. And what's interesting in, Mark 6, in John 6, 15, when he describes this crowd, here's what he says. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What you see here is this crowd of 5,000 men is probably a group of zealots. In fact, where Jesus is on the eastern shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee was a hotbed of agitation against the Roman occupation of Palestine. And this may have been initially a meeting of agitators and they see Jesus and they've seen him do miracles and what they want to do is to make Jesus king by force because they want to get rid of the Roman occupation over the Jewish people. They've misunderstood Jesus. They've misunderstood his mission and Jesus attempts to correct that through his teaching. Now while... The crowd is there, and Jesus has been teaching them a fair bit. We pick up the story in verse 35. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. They, they don't have food. Uh, the, the disciples wisely uh, say, we, let's dismiss the conference, so to speak, and let's let them go find something to eat. But verse 37, Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. So now Jesus is putting the disciples in a place where they are completely inadequate. They do not have the resources to feed 5,000 people. Disciples respond to Jesus, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? In other words, that would have been about eight months wages for a day laborer. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Jesus wants them to inventory what resources they did have, in part to show them they don't have the resources. And when they had found out, they said, we've got five, uh, five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus commands them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sit down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. He takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And not only were they satisfied, they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish so they had left over. The provision was abundant that Jesus provided for this crowd. This first dinner party shows us the nature of Jesus' kingdom, what he is offering to people. In fact, when you look at all of the miracles that Mark describes and throughout the Gospels, all of the miracles are designed in some sense to, to turn back the effects of sin and restore people and the creation back to the original creation when it was good and not full of sin and destruction that comes with sin. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of those. Hunger was not a problem in the Garden of Eden originally. They had plenty of things to eat. But when sin entered the world and the thorns and thistles grew up and made it difficult to, to eke out a living, food scarcity, famine, hunger 
has become part of the human experience. And in fact, it's amazing to me, but even in the, our own country, there is a significant amount of food insecurity even today. And when Jesus does this miracle for these 5,000 people, he is demonstrating that he is rolling back the effects of sin, restoring the creation back to its original design, so to speak. And, and as well, he's anticipating the future kingdom when he will right all wrongs and restore the, the glory of the universe, not simply back to its original creation, but into its amazing glory in the redemption of the universe. But also what Jesus is doing in this simple miracle. And I must say that, you know, the, these are amazing miracles. I mean, you know, feed 5,000 people, that's, 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 you know, that's a great miracle. He just, last week we saw him raise a 12-year-old from the dead. That's pretty amazing, healing the woman with the issue of blood. But I don't think if we were making a movie about Jesus, we would want those kinds of miracles. We'd want some, something with more flash. Right? We, we would want something like Independence Day, right? if you remember that. And the aliens came and they blew up the White House. You know? Or, or the, the, you know, Jesus would come and blow up the fortress of Antonio, the, the center of Roman power in Jerusalem. He's illustrating the kind of kingdom he's come. He's come to restore the world unto the reign of God. And every miracle either pushes back and looks back to the pristine original creation or looks forward to the coming kingdom. But there's something else that's physical, but I think is referring to a spiritual need that Jesus is meeting. Verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied now, that's certainly he's satisfying their physical hunger for sure, but I think what Mark is recording this for us and what the miracle points to is not only is Jesus providing for the physical needs of this crowd of people, but it's illustrating the fact that Jesus has come to provide the deepest satisfaction of our spiritual hunger. And the reality is that all of us face this dilemma of living in a world where it is so easy for us to try to find satisfaction in something in the world and it just doesn't work. I can remember um, my first year here in Princeton and I, I knew a lot about the Princeton basketball team back then with Coach Carrill. Um, followed their team actually quite closely. I didn't understand all of the ethos of what it's like to be a high school student in this area, Princeton area, it, it, because what a lot of high school students do and try to do is to find satisfaction in getting into the right school. And I'll never forget the, the day a, a student comes to me, he's weeping, he's in massive pain, uh, he didn't get into Princeton, and so his life is over. That was his dream. That was his hope. That was what was going to satisfy the deepest yearnings of his heart. And he was weeping, and I thought, well, maybe he didn't get into any college. He was so distraught. I said, well, did you get into any college? He says, oh, yeah, I got into Northwestern. Northwestern. That's a pretty good school. Last time I checked, they have a library. You know, they're accredited, I think. 
You see, what he was doing is he, he, he was putting the pursuit of satisfaction into what university he gotten into, and it didn't work out, and he was devastated. Well, we, we all do that, don't we? How many of us try to find our ultimate satisfaction in things of this world? It, it doesn't work. It always fails. C.S. Lewis put it so well. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly desires satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. On the other hand, never to mistake, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of this life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. When Jesus satisfies the physical hunger of this crowd, he is also pointing to something more profound that only in Jesus and in his kingdom can a person find ultimate satisfaction. It's only in Jesus himself that can provide the satisfaction, the deep yearning, our identity, our hopes, our dreams, in him can find satisfaction. Nothing in this world can ever satisfy you. You think about those 5,000 people that are gathered there, and if they are truly a group of zealots, which John seems to say that they are, they want the overthrow of Rome, that's what they're looking for. They believe, actually, if we could just get rid of Roman oppression, we could be satisfied. Well, it doesn't work. I'll never forget riding on a train. I was riding on a train from Bucharest to the city of Yash in Romania. It was just a few years after Ceausescu, the dictator who was in charge of Romania for 40 years or so, had been deposed uh, right around Christmas 1989. I was sitting with a, a, someone who spoke English, and I was glad to talk to him, and he was talking about the political situation in Romania, and he was, uh, I asked him a lot about you know, Ceausescu and, and how that, that change of leadership took place and the democracy that was trying to grow in Romania. And, and, and at one time he was so happy that, that Nic Nicholas Ceausescu had been deposed, but on the other hand, he seemed deeply frustrated with the political climate in, Ro in Romania. And so I asked him, what would you do? How do you plan to fix it? And he goes, oh, I've got a plan. And so I was like, oh, I was kind of interested. He goes, I got a great plan. What we're going to do is we're going to take every member of Congress and put them where the Congress meets in Bucharest. And then we're going to get every administration official from all over the country in that room. And I was like, well, then what? Thinking we was going to talk about teaching them democracy or something. He goes, and then we'll blow it up. 
See, even if Jesus had come and taken the Roman oppression away, that would not have satisfied these 5,000 people because there would have been other problems. Then they would have governed themselves with a different set of leaders who were probably equally oppressive in different ways. It's only in Jesus can we be fully satisfied. And of course, that's the problem we all have. We try to find satisfaction in all kinds of things, and it twists us and turns us in all kinds of unhelpful ways. Some of the uh, main problems we have is if you really do try to find satisfaction in this world, you're going to go one of two directions, C.S. Lewis talks about. On the one hand, what you're going to find out is that life will continually disappoint you, and if you keep trying to find your identity and your purpose and your, your, your satisfaction in this life, what you, will, what you will do to yourself is one of a couple of things, right? You will keep pursuing the, these things, and, and, and when you keep getting disappointed because life isn't all that it is meant to be, it can't satisfy you completely, some of us, what we end up doing is we get even more frenetic trying to find that satisfaction in the world. And we think, if I just get a new job, a new house, if I could just take a different vacation, get a new spouse, if I just had a different group of kids living in the house, maybe I could be satisfied then. But others of us, when we pursue the world and we try to find satisfaction and it keeps disappointing us over and over again, we begin to blame ourselves. I can't do it. And the despair is crushing. Others of you will pursue satisfaction in this world and you keep getting disappointed. What you will do is you will be angry with whoever you think is keeping you from getting that satisfaction. You become an angry, bitter person. Now some of you, and it usually takes, you have to be older, like over 45, what tends to happen to those of us who are a little bit older, a little bit more experienced in the world, we begin to realize that this life cannot satisfy us, and it's kind of a disappointment. And so what do we do? We get cynical, and we grouse, and we complain. And any young person that has this you know, desire to find satisfaction in the world, we laugh at them. We mock them. We try to talk them out of it. We get very cynical. And we sometimes try to say, well, I'm just not going to have any desires. I'm not going to have any expectations of this world. And the problem is when we do that, it dehumanizes us. Because we were built to be satisfied. We were built for, with these longings that can be satisfied. But only in Jesus and the pursuit of his kingdom and what Jesus is trying to describe here in this feeding of the 5,000 is that only in Jesus can we be satisfied. And that's the message of the first dinner party. But there's a second dinner party in the middle of the first dinner party. The second dinner party is alluded to in this section because when Jesus breaks the bread, he blesses it, it says in verse 41. He looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, and then he broke the loaves. 
and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. More than one commentator has noticed that these words, blessing, breaking, and giving, are the, exactly the same words that describe the second dinner party, which is at the Passover. When Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples and he breaks the bread and he, and, and, he drink, and he gives the cup to his disciples, but he breaks the bread and this is my body which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. This cup is a new covenant in my blood which was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And I think what's embedded in the first dinner party is an allusion to the second dinner party, which also describes who Jesus is and how his kingdom works. Jesus is describing here, anticipating when he blesses and breaks the bread, his broken body, is that in Jesus, in his death, is the only thing that can satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. It's only in him, his death for us, It allows us to be spiritually satisfied, to be spiritually full. Jesus is on the cross. He experienced physical thirst, but it was a picture of the spiritual thirst and the spiritual impoverishment that he was going through as he bears our sin upon that cross. When he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is at a spiritual deficit, massive deficit, because his sins have been placed on us. And it is only through his death that the way of his kingdom goes forward. It's only in his death that provides the spiritual satisfaction that we all are looking for that the world can never provide. A little story by a parishioner up in New York who came to faith in Jesus Christ and found that it was the death of Jesus that provided her with a new identity, a new satisfaction, a new fulfillment that enabled her to deal with the disappointments of a broken world. Here's what she wrote. A major issue in my life has been people-pleasing. I needed approval to be liked, to be admired, to be accepted. But for the first time, I was able to see how important it was that I identified with Jesus. His love has enabled me to set up emotional barriers with people that I never could before. This has enabled me to love my friends and family for who they are and not seek more from them because I can find whatever is lacking in the love of Jesus Christ. It's been a huge relief to feel free enough to love people and know that in Christ I am safe and protected and that protecting myself or standing up for myself is actually a good thing. It is precisely the death of Jesus Christ that is the way of the kingdom. It's how the kingdom comes into the world. It's how you become part of God's rule and reign and his reestablishment of authority. It's how you enter back into a relationship with the God who made you. And it is the only, Jesus, through his death, is the only one who can deeply and profoundly satisfy you. Because it's only in Jesus that allows you to live in a broken world and not be overwhelmed and undone. 
Well, that's the second dinner party, but there's also a third dinner party embedded in the first dinner party. So the second dinner party is the death of Christ. It's, it's communion, the, 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 the break, blessing and breaking of the bread, which symbolized the breaking of the body of Jesus. But there's a third dinner party. When commentators read this section and they see this beautiful picture of a group of people eating together and uh, surrounding Jesus and eating together and enjoying community together, many commentators are reminded of the beautiful picture of the future messianic banquet that those of us who know Christ will experience. And I want you to turn to Isaiah 25 before we wrap up here. Isaiah chapter 25 mentions this beautiful future messianic banquet. It's Isaiah 25 beginning in verse 6. Here's what this prophecy, this future messianic banquet prophesied by Isaiah says, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The feeding of the 5,000 is a picture of that future messianic banquet. When people from all nations will, will be gathered around Jesus Christ, worshiping him, free from sin, free from all of the effects of sin, eating and drinking together in fellowship and community without sin and everything that sin destroys. This is where King Jesus is taking us. This is what Mark wants us to see. And this is the banquet that awaits all of us. And this is the banquet that should capture our attention, that should capture our hope. This is what we ought to be living for because this is going to happen. And the reality is no matter what, no matter what you try to build your life on, you build it on anything other than Jesus Christ, you are building something on shifting sand. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I hear people who talk about their dream was to get into this certain career and they finally made it to that career and they hated it. People building their life on a career, building their life on the acceptance of another person, or building even a life around a spouse. No spouse, as good as they are, are able to, to meet all of your needs. They can't do it. Or we try to make our children what we live our lives for. That's crazy. Some of you live your lives for your teenager. You're nuts.
close with another quote from C.S. Lewis. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. Because there's only one person and one kingdom that we can live for that we won't be disappointed and that is living our identity, our hopes, our dreams in Jesus plus nothing else. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I pray for those in this room who are right now gripped by something in the world, trying to get satisfaction from something other than Jesus. It's not working. I pray that you would help them open up their eyes and see that whatever they're pursuing, as good as it may be, and as wonderful as it may be, it will never be able to satisfy like Jesus. I pray for each of us that you would turn our hearts back to Jesus, that we would find our identity, our hope, our dreams, our, our security in Jesus plus nothing, in his death and resurrection, that we would allow the love of Christ that he poured out for us on that cross to be the focus of our satisfaction, that the future banquet that awaits us would be what we live for, what we long for, what we pray for, what we work for. And in living for your kingdom, in living for you, no matter what life throws at, at us, no matter how disappointing things may become here on earth, we will live for something that can never be shaken, that can never be taken away from us, that can never fade or rust or be taken from us. The love and beauty of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom that he is bringing about. Help us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.